Today's reading is from Esther 2, verses 19 through 23. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Pigthen and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Jack. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Bannister. <laughs> it's always so good to start a Sunday morning with a hanging. <laughs> it's how we roll at Redemption Arcadia. So good morning, Arcadia. My name is Frank. I am also one of the pastors here along with Trey. Uh, who was just up here, Pastor Tyler and Zach as well. We're glad that you're here. Uh, this is my 25th Super Bowl Sunday doing this um, in a church congregation. I have to ask you three questions. First of all, I want to hear from the Kansas City Chiefs fans. I'm sorry, Vicki, very underwhelming. Now, can we hear from the San Francisco 49ers fans? Uh, fewer but louder, that's usually how San Francisco rolls. <laughs> Last question, how many of you could care less? <laughs> My sister-in-law for years, decades, has uh, put out a spread on Super Bowl Sunday at her house for family, and that's the only reason I look forward to Super Bowl Sunday. Otherwise, it's the longest, most painful game of the year. But there are sugar cookies and wings, so I'm excited about that. I, I have also have a couple of, of quick announcements. Number one, um, Ash Wednesday is this coming Wednesday, the 14th. Uh, we'll have two Ash Wednesday services, one at 7 in the morning on the way to work, 35 minutes, one at 7 o'clock. Uh, in the evening, sort of on the way home or from on the way home from dinner. Uh, again, 35 minutes, so we'd encourage you to be at one of those. And then uh, the other thing, and, and we're going to talk a lot more about this next Sunday, but again, I want to uh, just make you aware of this. Um, I, many of you maybe don't know, uh, I hope you would know after today though, is that we have a songwriting team here at Redemption Arcadia called Arcadia Worship uh, that is led by um, Caleb Wiseman, who was uh, uh, leading us from this uh, keyboard here today. Um, in October of 2022, they released their first EP called Infinite, and we had a, a big release party that had more than 200 people at the Rebel Lounge. If, how many of you were at that Rebel Lounge? See, that's awesome. Uh, it was really fun. Um, and those 10 songs have been on Spotify, and it's, it's doing pretty well. Uh, they have written 11 new songs. We're already singing a couple of them on Sunday morning. 
All 11 of them will be released to us on Friday night, March 1st, here in the sanctuary. We're going to have the release party here. We're going to serve dinner to anybody who comes, and we're hoping for 300 people. So we're going to serve dinner, then we're... Uh, serve dinner. Well, you'll probably stand and eat. I mean, <laughs> at any rate, we're going to have food for you. Then we're all going to come in here uh, and they are going to do a live recording of those 11 songs with us here as well. And so it's going to be a great night and we would encourage you to mark your calendar for that. Uh, that event is now on our website. So if you go to our website and go to events, you'll find it uh, under there. So we hope you're there. All right, so uh, I would encourage you, since Jack read from uh, Esther chapter 2, I would encourage you to open your Bibles or your phones to Esther chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we are in the uh, midst of an eight-week series in the book of Esther. This is week number two. And since this is the first week that we are going to have a pattern, I'm going to tell you exactly what the pattern is going to be for today and for the next six weeks after this for each of these messages. The pattern will start with a review of what where we are in the story. So the review is going to get longer every single week because we need to bring you up to date every single week. Then we will uh, talk about the text for that day. And today's text is chapter two. And then at the end, we'll have kind of a wrap up or an application or at times I call it the closing argument, whatever you want to call it. But we'll have something at the end to sort of wrap things up talking about the gospel and Jesus uh, for sure. So here's the review from last week. Last week, if you remember, we were introduced to uh, King Ahasuerus, who is also known as, as King Xerxes. And, and we talked about how his name is actually a pun, which means headache. And so we called him at times King Headache. We also called him Xerxes the Jerxes because he's kind of a, his character is not that great. At any rate, last week, chapter one, King Headache has this big party for 187 days, also thought by most historians uh, to be a, a sort of a, a long alcohol-infused strategy session for the war that King Xerxes was planning to wage against Greece, against uh, Athens. But at the end of this party, on the 187th day, the king, he was merry with wine, and so he asked that his wife, the Queen Vashti, would come and parade around in front of all of his drunken comrades. He wanted to show her off. He had spent that 187 days not only planning for the war, but also showing off his wealth and everything that he owned. Uh, the only thing he hadn't shown all of his friends was his wife, and so he said, I might as well show her, show her to them as well. So he sends for Vashti, and Vashti says, mm, no. And no means no. And so the king, in his drunken stupor, became furious. And so then he went to his wise men, his cabinet members, his friends, um, who, taking full advantage of this situation that the king was in, they tell the king to banish Vashti for good. He's never to see her again. She's never to see him again. And to write a law that claims that no woman can refuse any request from her husband throughout the entire kingdom. There's a great author, an economist, he's in his 90s now, and he's still writing books, a guy as cogent as can be. Uh, he's written more than 40 books. I've read uh, several of his books, and I can recommend many of them to you, but his name is Thomas Solwell. Um, he's got this quote here that fits perfectly here. It'll fit perfectly next week also in chapter 3, when Haman manipulates the king as well. 
Politics is the art of making your selfish desires seem like national interests. That's exactly what these guys did to uh, Xerxes. And the king foolishly followed their counsel. And that's where we ended last week. So now a little preview of chapter 2. In chapter 2, the plot thickens. And chapter 2 is, 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 is weirder than chapter 1. Now we need to understand that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, four years pass as the king and his, uh, his military prosecute their war against Greece and the war does not go well for, um, for Persia and especially for King Xerxes. Now this, this war against Greece was supposed to be an easy campaign, supposed to be shock and awe, it was supposed to be over within just a, a few weeks. It ended up lasting four months and, and they thought it was going to be a slam dunk, a piece of cake, like taking candy from a baby, all the famous last words that you can think of that always signified uh, possible problems, okay? Piece of cake and then everything goes wrong, okay? And there were times during this war when it seemed as though the Persians would prevail, but in the end the Greeks pushed them back and humiliated the Persians. The most famous battle during this four years is, of course, the, the, battle, the 300 battle, better known as the Battle of Thermopylae. And even though the Persians eventually did win that battle, it was discouraging and deflating that 300 Greek soldiers held off thousands of Persian military men for a very long time. And in fact, the Greeks only lost that battle when an insider in the Greek forces betrayed the Greek forces and went and told the Persians how they could finally overcome uh, the Greeks. At any rate, they ended up losing the war, so King Xerxes returns to Susa, the capital, dragging and humiliated. He's emasculated and weakened. He's embittered and vulnerable. And so he's feeling pretty low at the start of chapter 2. It's now 479 BC, four years after chapter 1. And it's important to understand for context that ancient kings, almost all ancient kings, including Xerxes, fancied themselves as not just human, but also as divine. They played and portrayed themselves as gods. And what might an ancient defeated god do when he returns from an unsuccessful military campaign? Well, I'll give you a little hint. Vashti is no longer available to him. There's a Jewish commentary known as a Midrash, ancient Jewish commentary, on this Vashti gate scandal that says that Xerxes was drunk when he exiled Vashti, but then claimed that then claims when he sobered up, he beheaded those advisors who had suggested exiling the queen. Because it was apparently well known by all historians at that time that Xerxes really liked Vashti. But the order to banish Vashti was done under the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Xerxes, as king, even he could not revoke an order, an edict, that he himself had authored and had distributed throughout the kingdom. Xerxes, though a king, was a fool who loved Vashti, but could not constrain his temper, and it cost him severe consequences. At any rate, even four years later, Vashti's banishment hung heavy on Xerxes' heart. And so now, what happens in chapter 2? A couple of commentators have called chapter 2 the bachelor Persian style. <laughs> so verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said... Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, 
And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. <laughs> After these things, so after the war for four years, the king remembered Vashti. And uh, historians will tell you that he remembered her fondly, and now he remembers her with great regret because of what has happened. You know, just a quick moment of application. Absolute power and unlimited wealth sometimes have a way of clouding somebody's judgment. And even if this woman... Uh, lost this contest. We, we need to understand some things about this contest. First of all, if, if the officers uh, looked at you and said, you're really good looking, you need to be a part of this contest, you had no ability to refuse. You, you were not allowed to refuse. Your family couldn't refuse. There was nothing you could do. You couldn't say, hey, the harvest is about to come in and, my, and the family needs me to help bring it. No, you were just taken as property. And um, understand there was going to be one woman for every day of the year. So there's, there's going to be 365 women, we understand. And only one's going to win. So you got a one in 365 shot at winning this contest, at win, at winning in quotes. But I'm guessing that there might be some people who are like, yeah, maybe you could be queen. That would be great for us. But at any rate, the under 364 who lost, they didn't just get to go home. I want you to understand that. They did not get to go home. There was a, a, an ancient Persian law that said that once a woman has been with the king, she can be with no other man for the rest of her life. So when she lost, she had to go into this second harem with all these other women, all the losers, and that's where she had to live the rest of her life, probably never to be summoned by the, by the queen again. So the rest of her life is hanging out with these women, doing Lancome, Clinique, Estee Lauder, all their, for nothing, because they're also surrounded by a bunch of eunuchs who can't touch them. And that's their life, okay? So this, is, this starts weird and gets weirder. I just want you to know, okay? One commentator said, this almost sounds like a weird version of the Hunger Games, okay? At any rate, if you're thinking this is an early form of sex trafficking, I think you're right on track. It's nothing new, it's nothing no, old, but it is something evil. And I will tell you, it's somewhat confusing to me how easily the world dismisses this and things like it. Um, last, this past year, a movie came out called The Sound of Freedom. And it's a type of movie that when people uh, in a church see the movie, uh, the first thing they do is they go to their pastor or they email their pastor, they text their pastor, or they call their pastor or whatever, and they say, you need to see this movie. And so it's one of those movies that eventually Jackie and I had to see, The Sound of Freedom. A very popular movie. Uh, what I find astonishing is how many people were deeply offended by this movie, and not Christians but people outside of the church who were deeply offended by this movie. Not because the movie was about really tough stuff. It's rated R, and it was very difficult. Jackie and I watched it, and it was not an easy movie to watch. But rather, they were offended because people, most people dismissed it out of hand as misinformation, literally claiming that this sex trafficking thing really isn't happening. 
that it's just, it's overplayed. We're talking too much about it. It was fascinating, astonishing to me. It is happening. And here's what we can't escape. We can't escape the fact that humans have always, for millennia, found their way to wickedness and then have found a way to dismiss that wickedness. That's what Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, keeps trying to tell us. The human heart, our hearts, the seat of our pathos, the seat of our passions and our emotions. The human heart is wicked and deceptive above all things. No one can understand it. And yet we are constantly told by our world today, follow your heart. That's where you will find your deepest truth. Your heart is always good. Your heart will never lead you astray. That's bogus. It's just not true. And, and our hearts have been like that since Genesis chapter 3. If you want to know why people are the way they are, why, why the world is the way it is, all you got to do is read Genesis chapter 3, and you'll understand that it's the fall. That this sin thing, this nature of sin has been imputed to all of us. We, all, we can't escape it, but there is one pathway. There is one path out of this. There's one path that saves us all from this issue that every one of us has to deal with, and that's Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his life-giving resurrection. One commentator, uh, looking at chapter 2 and what's going on here with this contest, he calls this contest an act of terrorism. He says it's a type of terror campaign waged by Xerxes. Now, why would he say that? He says, it this, he says it this way. He says, Xerxes felt that he lost power, status, and control because he lost his war against the Greeks. And so collecting these women made him feel like he was in control again. Terror is about power and control. So let's move on to the next seven verses, 2 through 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now that whole line thing that we just went through is going to be a big deal next week in chapter 3. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives carried away with, Jecon when Jeconiah, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. The daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in, in, in the custody of Haggai, who had the charge of the women. <clears throat> and the, and the, woman, the young woman, Esther, pleased Haggai and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her, with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known to her peop uh, known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make to make it known. She wasn't to allow anybody to know that she was Jewish. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now this is where I want to put this into a contemporary context to just demonstrate, I hope, how really weird this is. Okay, let's say. <clears throat> that someday the United States elects a somewhat young, quite vibrant, 
single man to be president. And the president has executive order power. And so he gathers his cabinet, all of his wise men, his wise counselors, and they say to him, you know, it's not good that the president of the United States doesn't have a wife. You need a first lady. Okay, so here's what we propose. We're going to go and find the 365 best-looking women across the United States, and we're going to bring them all here. And for a year, every night, you're going to sleep with one of them. And then at the end, you're going to choose one of them to be your wife, to be the, the first lady. Some of you are nodding your head, going, yeah, that's weird. Others of you are looking at me in shock, going, oh, my goodness. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Come on now. And now... Let me take it a step further, because this is what's happening in the text right here. Let's say a Christian father has a beautiful daughter, and rather than trying to hide her, he's like, take her, please. She, would, she could possibly become the first lady. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. This is base. This is wrong. And Mordecai and Esther are Bible heroes. There's some tension there. If you don't feel that tension... Please come and see me afterwards because we need to talk. Okay? This is rough. Now let's talk a little bit about these people and their names. By the way, the names are a big deal in this story. First of all, Mordecai. It's interesting. We all know that Mordecai is a Jewish name. But, it's, but we only know it as a Jewish name because of this story. Originally, Mordecai was a Persian name. And not only was it a Persian name, but it was a name honoring the ancient Persian god Marduk. If you know anything about what the Bible has to say about Marduk, that's not good. Mordecai is Jewish. But his name shows the assimilation that, was, that had taken place by the Jews, who had spent more than 100 years in exile in Babylon and now in Persia. So this phrase that we see in the text, a Jew in Susa, in Susa named Mordecai, was actually quite offensive to the original Jewish readers. And then there's the citadel. We mentioned this last week, but I want to remind you, a citadel was a, a something that was situated on ground that was higher than the rest of the city in a militarily superior position, and it is a combination of palace and fortress. It's large, ornate, and self-contained. Now let's talk about Esther's name. She's got two names, and both names mean a lot. First of all, her Jewish name, Hadassah, literally means myrtle. She was named for the myrtle tree. The Jewish people see the myrtle tree. It's, they, they love the myrtle tree. They see it as a strong, steadfast, righteous tree. So by naming her Hadassah, they were saying she is going to be somebody who is righteous. That's what they were trying to impute to her. But she also has a Persian name, again, indicating perhaps some assimilation. The name Esther is a play on the Persian god Istar, which means star. But Esther in the Hebrew is also a pun that means hidden. Notice that Esther is hiding her ethnicity and her, and her faith as Mordecai instructed her until just the right time later in the story. And remember that God, we talked about this last week, uh, the, the big thing about uh, the book of Esther is God's hidden presence. So God is also hidden in this story because his name is never used in the telling of this story, but he's there. Both Esther and God are fully present, but at this time, they're both trying to hide themselves in some way. <clears throat> now, 
Now we also learn that Esther is also beautiful in both form and face, that she was pleasant to look at meant that she had a beautiful uh, face. Um, there's maybe one or two of you in here old enough like me to remember that in the mid-60s, 64 to 67, there was a rock band. Uh, I believe they were an American band, but they actually formed in Europe when they were serving in the military in Germany. And it was a band called the Monks. Anybody? Not the Monkees, but the Monks. And they were, they were around from like 64 to 67. They had a very popular song about um, a, a blind date. And one of the lines in the song went like this. Nice legs, it's a shame about her face. This song was not about Esther. This song was not about Esther. By the way, that song would never fly today. See, here's what we need to understand. We've got to concede something that's probably going to be uncomfortable, but it's also true, and there's really no way around it. Good looks will open doors. Good looks will open doors. If you don't believe that or wish it weren't true, you're denying reality. Good looks will open doors. But even more important than that, even more important than that reality is what the great Alistair Begg has said about this. He says, just because your good looks open a door, it doesn't mean that that's a door you should walk through. Too many times we will walk through doors just because they've been opened for us. Well, this was a door that she had to walk through because God had ordained it. And she got there partly because of her good looks. But one rabbinical, ancient rabbinical commentary also suggests that Esther is like a work of art in which every beholder can see what they want to see. But her special skill was that she could find favor in and with all who looked upon her. And the commentary says, and it was a skill that was far more than beauty or sensual. It was far more important than her looks. And it was eventually what won her the contest and allowed her to do God's work. And that was that Esther was clever and shrewd. And we're going to find that out in those middle chapters. She was clever and shrewd. But now let's talk about Esther's experience as compared to Daniel's. Because, you know, people compare Esther and Daniel. They're both Bible heroes and Esther's just like Daniel. No, she's not. Daniel's the great Bible hero that, um, uh, that has a book that bears his name. But Esther... She's really not all that righteous in the beginning of this story. Unlike Daniel, who in chapter 1 of Daniel, he, he refused the, the food from the royal table. He refused the king's uh, food. Esther's much more assimilated into her culture, it seems. Esther, perhaps for reasons of ignorance, assimilation, or maybe just simple pragmatics, she takes full advantage of the pagan offerings, and Mordecai put her up to it. It's pretty interesting what God will use in order to make things happen. It's pretty interesting what God will use in order to make things happen. The author Mike Cosper writes about this. He says, it's much easier for you and I to think that we are either a sinner or a saint than to acknowledge that we are a mixture of both. We are a mixture of both. Esther is a mixture of both, just like you and me. And Paul knows that. If you don't think Paul knows that, read Romans chapter 7. But Paul also reminds us at the end of Romans 7, at the beginning of chapter 8, 
that although we are both saint and sinner in the temporal sense, he also explains that if we are in Christ, God looks at us as only righteous saints because of the saving blood of Jesus. Esther was an assimilated sinner, but God also saw her as someone who, when properly awakened to his purposes, he would be able to accomplish his purposes through her. So how does the contest turn out? Verses 12 through 18. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, they all went over to Macy's at the Biltmore and got stuff, Lancome Clinique, Estee Lauder, all the whole thing. When the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, another great Shashgaz. If Jackie and I ever had another kid, daughter or son, Shashgaz Switzer. Inspire fear in anybody who ran into her. The king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihil, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own uncle, as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised her to take. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Xerxes in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther is in. Now, if you don't know this story coming in, you, you might be thinking, okay, so what? Well, just like when you don't know what's going on sometimes in the first 20 minutes of a movie or in the first 50 pages of a novel, the plot is developing and soon it will all come together and it will all make sense. But here's what I can assure you of right now in this moment. God is on the move. God is on the move. And this next paragraph that Jack read for us, this last one that we'll look at today, might seem even further out in left field than what we just read, but this next paragraph is critical to the development of the rest of the story. God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I read that somewhere in the New Testament once. So let me reread what Zach, uh, Jack read for us. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her, or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and here you go. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. 
So what about this plot by Big Thin and Teresh? First of all, um, have you ever met twin boys named Big Thin and Teresh? Anybody? Yeah, neither have I. Is anybody pregnant with twins? Because I, I got a suggestion for you. All right. Let's talk about the aforementioned detail that needs to be remembered. We need to remember this. Esther kept quiet about her being a Jew. Now, why is that? Was it simply assimilation because of fear of being found out? Maybe so. It was probably way easier for Esther and other Jews in the Persian Empire, certainly they learned this in Babylon to some extent, to simply fit into the cultural ethos than to be identified as people of faith. Ironically, especially today, to be identified as Jewish could be dangerous. When people of faith are afraid of the culture, it's often deemed best to just become a part of the culture. But also, here's the tension now, had she identified herself as a Jew, there's no way she would have been selected as the queen. No way. But at the same time, by not telling anybody she's a Jew, she's denying God. She's denying Yahweh. She's denying her people. She's denying her faith. Well, maybe it was isolation if it's not assimilation. Isolation is another way to deal with a culture that is intimidating. You just never engage. You just put yourself in a silo. You find your cave. You discover your echo chamber and you batten down the hatches. At least you didn't assimilate. But you're cut off from everything. Whichever it was, assimilation or isolation, in this case, does God eventually use it? Yes. It doesn't excuse it, but God does use it. We have to admit there is tension here. They're not behaving as good Torah-following Jewish people are supposed to behave are called to behave by God. There's tension. More on this later. Anyway, why this plot twist with the scheme to kill the king? It's actually pretty simple. Two things to understand. Number one, because Xerxes had waged a long, expensive, depleting, and eventually losing war against Greece, there were actually plenty of disgruntled people in the kingdom thinking it was time for Xerxes to be relieved of his throne. First time in history that's ever happened, right? There's no way that Big Thin and Teresh were the only ones thinking this, but this is the one plot that God decided to use in this story. And that leads us to the second point. Without this plot being discovered by Mordecai, we don't have a, the reversal and resolution at the end of this story that leads to the preservation of God's people, which leads to Jesus coming 500 years later. None of this happens. Without this story, these four verses, these five verses right here, and there's a reason the Jews gather every spring to read this book all at once and celebrate Purim. It's because everything is connected, as we will eventually see. So as goofy as verses 1 through 18 seem to be, verses 19 through 23 are actually just as critical, if not more, to the story. It's one of those things that happens in a story that you have to tuck away for later and becomes very important. So in closing, let me ask this question. If, if you're a person of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, like I am, what do we do as people of faith in a faithless world? Uh, Cosper's book about Esther is, is titled, Living as a Person of Faith in a Faithless World. That's an interesting way of putting it. What do we do as people of faith living in a faithless world? Do we assimilate or do we isolate? Well, assimilation is actually a failure of nerve. 
We prefer the comfortable affirmation of others when we assimilate rather than the perseverance and courage that God requires in the face of unbelief. But isolation is a failure of the heart. When we isolate, we prefer the comfort of never having to live among our faith among the faithless, nor of having to love the faithless, which we are called to do. Assimilation fails to resist. Isolation fails to engage. And Jesus pu pushes against both. Jesus pushes against both. We are called by God to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to neither assimilate nor isolate. And I know there's tension there. Who has told you that Christianity will eliminate all the tension in your life? Has anybody ever told you that? They're lying to you. There is tension here. Now, is it possible that God can use assimilation or isolation for his purposes? It sure seems that way in this story. Does that give us permission to assimilate or isolate? Ironically, the answer to that is no. But it does call us to the most difficult of tasks. We must walk the line between assimilation and isolation. So you might say, well, how do you do that? Four things that we need to do. We talk about these things all the time, but I'm going to hit you with it again. And here's the first thing. You need to be a person of the word of God. You need to read his word. You need to study his word. And I know how difficult and challenging that is. When I first became a Christian, the last thing I wanted to read was this book because I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. It was confusing. It didn't help me in any way, shape, or form. But as I got into community, I started finding others who were really good at reading and studying this book who weren't pastors. They were just people following Jesus who learned how to read this, who learned how to study it. And so I started asking them to spend time with me, go to coffee with me, and help me figure that out. And that's how I started figuring it out. Then I met Tom Schrader, and he was a tremendous help as well, our founding pastor. You got to be a person of the word. This is a magnificent book, and it's filled with stuff that every single day that you read it is going to apply to your lives. Uh, God is timeless, and a timeless God would never produce dated material. This is good stuff. But if you have trouble doing that, which I understand, I run into people all the time who say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't read the Bible. It's too hard to read, so I've given up on it. Don't give up. What you need to do is, second thing, find a community. Find a small group. Find a redemption community, an RC. We call them RCs. Find a home group, a small group, whatever it is. Find that small group where you have to go in. You can't just come on Sunday and sort of be anonymous, sort of just fit into the crowd and then leave right after communion so you don't have to engage with anybody. When you get into a small group, you are known and you will, be no you, you will know others. Suddenly, you have to be a little bit vulnerable to learn who other people are, and they learn who you are, and then you're able to go and say, hey, I'd like to have coffee with you, and maybe we could start studying the Bible together. I know, I know I've been doing this for 25 years. I know some of you right now are thinking, well, I'll just ask Frank to do it with me. There's 700 adults in this community. I can't do it with all of you. But there are plenty of people in this community who know this thing maybe even better than I do who are in redemption communities waiting for you to come and say, let's have a cup of coffee. So go to a redemption community and find somebody to do this with. And that leads to the third thing. You need to understand that as a follower of Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's God. 
God is in you. You need to start welcoming the Holy Spirit and understand that the Holy Spirit will lead, guide, and direct you. But you also need to understand that the Holy Spirit will never lead, guide, and direct you in a way that's antithetical to His Word. So I hear this all the time. God wants me happy. I'm unhappy in my marriage, so God must want me divorced. No, He doesn't. He doesn't. Well, that's the Holy Spirit telling me that. No, that's Satan telling you that. That's your heart telling you that. Welcome the Holy Spirit and let Him do His work in you. And by the way, when the Spirit comes and starts doing His work, here's what I've discovered. He's going to do a lot of things in your life that you're not that excited about. Again, there's tension in being a Christian, but it'll be what God wants from us, and it will be ultimately what's best for us as well. So be a person of the Word. Read the Word. Be somebody who's in community. You need to be in community with Christians so you can go out into the world and not be, feel intimidated by that. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct your life, and then you need to be also a person of prayer. Again, I run into Christians all the time. I don't read God's word and I'm terrible at prayer. I don't do that either. Okay, here you go. You need to pray too. Okay? Well, it's hard to pray. I don't know how to pray. Read the Bible. Read God's word. You know what? There's really easy ways to pray in the Bible. Here's the simplest and probably the most effective. If you read through the Old Testament, you see that the, the people of God always prayed this way. Number one, the first thing they would pray is, God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you exist. I thank you for who you are. I'm glad you're God and I'm not. This world would be a lot more messed up if I was God. I thank you for who you are. Praise him for who he is. Second of all, here's what God's people always did. The second thing is they always said, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the exodus. Thank you for taking your people, our people, us, out of slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Thank you for saving us from that. And then third, they say, thank you for what you continue to do in our lives. That's an easy prayer to start with, and that just gets the ball rolling. You can pray the Psalms. Also, Jesus said, you might want to pray this way, our Father. Okay, yeah. Okay, some of you actually know that. That's good. Okay? So... The Word of God, community, spirit, prayer. And by the way, we think prayer is so important that we have a full-time staff member here who's awesome named Malia Rogers who leads our prayer ministry here. If you want to know more about prayer, you need to get connected to Malia as well. That's how you do it, those four things. And I know how difficult it is. You and I as Christians are battered and embattled by our culture, but here you go. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus has always walked the path and lived the life that he calls us to. When we suffer, we look to his suffering on the cross. When we feel fear about our culture, we look to his culture, his courage to confront the, the professional religious people and their status quo to confront the Roman government. Even under the threat of his execution, we can do it because Jesus has already done it. You know, the world is constantly telling us of our inadequacies and of the flaws of our Savior Jesus, while also insisting that they have all the answers to all of our problems. But Jesus is the only true answer. The only one. There's a great, great theologian. I've never quoted him before, but he's been on television for about 30 years. His name is Homer Simpson. Now, I don't watch The Simpsons, but I know that he once said this during, during a, because, uh, you know, there's YouTube during, during a, an episode. 
He said, you know, the Bible is just filled with nothing but messed up people except one. Homer's right. It's Jesus, and that's why we need Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would just give us the courage to be able to do this. Help us to learn from the lives of Esther and Mordecai as this story unfolds, that your presence is real, it's always with us, even when we don't feel it, and that we should be looking for it. Help us to be able to do that. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us through your son on the cross. We thank you for what you're doing even now in our lives. And we pray that the Spirit would be welcome in our lives, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.